one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about the role of bariatric surgery for people with osteoarthritis. Now, the prevalence of osteoarthritis is continuing to grow, as are rates of obesity. Obesity, or being above a healthy weight, is a major risk factor for the progression of osteoarthritis, and those who are above a healthy weight are at increased risk for acquiring surgery, such as total knee replacement. By preventing weight-related osteoarthritis, as well as helping to manage people's weight, we may be able to reduce the burden of osteoarthritis. The effects of weight loss on knee osteoarthritis pain have been well-established, particularly from diet and exercise studies. On this episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Samuels to discuss the role of bariatric weight loss and how it might delay or eliminate the need for total knee replacement in some people. Dr. Jonathan Samuels is a rheumatologist at New York University or NYU Langone Health, which is located in Manhattan, New York. He's an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Jonathan's focus is on osteoarthritis of the hip and knee, and he strives to contribute to significant breakthroughs in this area by working in collaboration 
with both orthopedic and bariatric specialists. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Oh, it's our, our pleasure. It's good to chance to have a chance to catch up with you. It's been a while since uh, we had a chance to reminisce over tennis or basketball or whatever it might have been. Um, yeah, meeting in person has been a long time as well. I think it may be a while yet. Yeah. As I said before, we're in the midst of a lockdown, but hopefully that'll end at some point in my distant future. Anyway, before we get into the main content of today, just to get to know you a little bit better, can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like for you? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. I've been at NYU for about 15 years now uh, as a rheumatologist and uh, investigator. And so I really am able to mix my days between patient care and clinical investigation, do some teaching. But a typical day, I may see patients for five or six hours during the day at certain intervals, work on a couple of the clinical trials we have going on with our, our clinical research staff. Some days I'll go over to the hospital and round on patients, depending on the, the day of the week or what part of the year it is. But it's a pretty full day and, and engaging. And I see a mixture of patients with osteoarthritis, which is a bulk of my clinical research. But I also like to see a variety of rheumatic disease, which I think is important just to keep the right perspective about all the different syndromes. So that's a typical day, probably more of a uh, eight to six day, which uh, lends a little bit of time to doing a few other things, but I enjoy the breadth of the day. Fantastic. And whereabouts are you from? Sure. Well, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. It's an important detail. I didn't want anybody to, to miss. It is. So, uh, we'll come back to that. Well, yes, it's important. Uh, the Red Sox and the Celtics keep me, keep me <laughs> honest, wherever country you're from. But I uh, moved to Dallas, Texas at the age of seven and really grew up a Texan. And then moved back to the Northeast for uh, the United States for a schooling, or college, med school, and spent some time in Ohio for residency and Washington, D.C. a little bit for some fellowship training. But since 2002, I've been primarily in, in New York City uh, during fellowship, and then I've stayed at NYU Langone for the last 15 years. Uh, so I guess you could call me a New Yorker. How does, that, how does that feel for someone who grew up in Boston, but obviously also has a little bit of Texas in the blood? Does, doesn't that run against the grain a little? It definitely does, but it makes it more exciting. There, there are many of us imposters here in New York City, so we, we like to shake things up and <laughs> have some fun. But, but I'll tell you, on my white coat, I wear a Boston Red Sox pin year-round, whether they're in first place or last place. And it's nice to talk to our patients as I'm injecting steroid into their knee uh, about the the uh, the success or the failure of the Red Sox. And at least they, they know that I'm not too serious about those things and, and like to have a little levity. Yeah, I can imagine during an injection, if they got quite irate about their Yankees support, that's not going to work so well with a needle in their knee, is it? Well, I, they have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I think it lightens things up, which is important, I think, with when uh, seeing patients and just to, to keep everybody not, not, not too intense. Fantastic. Now, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Well, these days, I like to take care of the 10-year-old twin boys and whatever they want to do. It's a full-time job in its own right, but I, I like to exercise and get some fresh air through the lungs. I like to listen to some music and tinker on the piano a little bit, keep that going. But a mixture of things is pretty good. But these days, I spend three hours a day on the train back and forth from home. So I guess that, that lends some, to some, some time to read. Wow. Three-hour commute. That's brutal. Now, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Five words. Well, 
I'm definitely stubborn. Who knows where that comes from? I think I would describe myself as motivated and organized. I would say that I'm a genuine person. And finally, I probably think that I'm a, a connector. I seem to, to help different people in different ways at times. So that must be me. Fantastic. Yeah, wonderful qualities. Really great to hear. Now, obviously, the main content of today is really about bariatric surgery and in people that might have uh, osteoarthritis. But in the first instance, just to set a little bit of context about why obesity is important, why people ultimately might get to bariatric surgery, what's the relationship, if any, between obesity and the developmental progression of osteoarthritis? Well, it's so important today because obesity is so prevalent and you don't really see that turning around anytime soon. And the, the extra weight can have various impacts. And we've seen that in many centers, including NYU, where we have a, a large obesity and bariatric surgery initiative and, and a fantastic orthopedics department. So as a rheumatologist, I'm kind of uh, a connector, as you will, and, and working with both fields and seeing that just patients with obesity, they have obviously the extra mechanical load and just extra pressure pushing down the cartilage in those joints, the knees, the hips, and elsewhere. And we know that's certainly a, a component of why there's a relationship between obesity and, and osteoarthritis and we're also getting to know that there's more to the story because we have osteoarthritis and joints that don't involve the mechanical load. And patients with obesity have a higher percentage of hand osteoarthritis. And we certainly don't walk on our hands, at least at least on this side of the, uh, the world. I don't know about in Australia. But so there has to be some other component. And really, it's really believed that the obesity, the adipose tissues, we call it, that fat tissue has a lot of metabolic cascades and, and reactions that go on the body that impact what happens in terms of pain in the knee and degradation and wearing and tearing in the cartilage and the bones within the, the joints. So we're finding that obesity is, is a significant risk factor that we can modify one way or another for osteoarthritis because there are many risk factors for osteoarthritis as you've been talking about in your podcast and, and many other, other folks that Many risk factors we can't do anything about. We can't prevent people from getting older. We can't stop them from playing sports or things that may impact, but we certainly can do something about the extra weight, fat, and adipose tissue that's there. Yeah, no, wonderful explanation. And, and as part of what you said there, you said that you know, you're a connector between the bariatric surgeons and the orthopedic surgeons. One of the, I think, more common areas where this may occur is a person goes along, they've seen an orthopedic surgeon. The surgeon said, you're carrying too much weight or there's some complication that may be related to the surgery and I want you to go away and lose some weight. What is the surgeon's concern here? Why are they worried about joint replacement in an obese person? I think they're concerned about a couple of issues. One is even if they replace a joint, but patient's still carrying way too much weight, it may not allow the patient to be active and utilize the new joint and heal as well. Uh, it may put extra pressure on the prosthesis or the, the, the artificial joint that's been put in. But a big concern as well, it's sometimes hard to quantify, but is there an increased risk of, of getting an infection with all the extra fat tissue and the, uh, the post-operative course? And they're going to have an issue with that, with that joint replacement. So there are many reasons why the uh, orthopedists have their threshold. And every orthopedist has, has their own cutoff. 
you know, how much weight is too much weight before a surgery. So I think these are important issues that every surgeon has to, has to address themselves before they decide whether they're going to take someone to the operating room and, and what they do to encourage the patient to lose weight. There are many different ways to lose weight and some are more successful than others, but I think it's, it's an important question that they have to ask when someone comes to them. Yeah. Now, what are the typical thresholds that you see being applied by surgeons around weight and indications for surgery? So we go by the body mass index, BMI, if you will, and there's a, a calculation that taking your height and your weight, putting that together and coming out with the patient's BMI. And uh, we found, at least the institution I'm at, anything above 35 is pretty significant no-no that they, they rarely will want to operate anyone above that threshold. And anything over 30 is considered to be obese. Anything over 25 is considered to be overweight. So when you have patients who are in that 31, 32, 33 range, they're pushing the boundaries. And I, I think many surgeons will operate on, on patients in the, the low 30s, but it varies. And still, when they see someone, they're still going to encourage them. If they're sitting at 33 on the initial evaluation, they're probably going to encourage them over the next number of months to try to lose some weight and get down below to 30. Or if they're coming at 36, get them down to 32, 33 before they go and do a surgery. But I think it's important to maximize the possible utility of a, of a, a joint replacement, going through all that effort to encounter the risk of a, of a, a joint surgery and then and to benefit from that. So I think it's in everybody's best interest, not just the surgeon worrying about their surgical statistics and success statistics, but the patient definitely can uh, improve their possibility of having a good outcome. And for that particular indication, how does that conversation go? So that, you know, they've gone along, they've seen the surgeon, they've had their weight and their height taken. So they've calculated their body mass index. And let's say it's 35 or above. What does the surgeon say to them in terms of, you know, go away, lose weight, do they give them a mechanism? What steps do they go into that? Is it options around diet and exercise or is it straight to the bariatric surgeon? How does that work? No, more of the former. Uh, not being a surgeon and not sitting in the room during those conversations, but discussing with them uh, as we do. Oftentimes we, we have these chats. They're very encouraging to the patient. Most parts saying, look, we'd love to get your joint pain, pain away and your function better, but let's try to maximize the benefit from me going in there and, and let's try to get you to lose some weight in some ways are with our nutritionists. I mean, every institution has its own mechanism and, and system, but I would say most, either, either it's an institution or a, a private practice will have some referral to nutritionists to help improve a patient's diet, uh, work with a physical therapist to improve function and, and ability to walk and exercise in a safe way and see where that leads. Uh, and if diet and exercise aren't enough, as, as we've learned, this is often the case with many a trial, uh, as, as David, as you know, sometimes and oftentimes we aren't getting nearly enough weight loss. And so at that point, or earlier on, if it's really a morbid obese, morbidly obese patient to, to suggest there are these other specialists called bariatric surgeons that have many mechanisms of weight loss that can really improve your overall health, not just for your knees, but really get you more healthy. And the knee may be the, the linchpin of the way to, to get them to accept it. But uh, these types of surgeries can be life-changing for many people and at least life-improving for many, many others. And so to discuss to some minimal degree, what are the options, whether it's a less invasive or more invasive type of weight loss surgery, which we can discuss. 
uh, and then refer them at times. We, we have relationships with the bariatric surgeons and then they can take it from there and decide which is the best surgical option for a given patient, given their other comorbidities, other, other medical problems and their fears and concerns about surgery. Yeah, no, brilliant. And so let, let's get into that. And for those listeners out there who want to hear a little bit more about different diet and exercise options and the evidence behind that, we've done other episodes with Steve Messier around diet and exercise and one with uh, Rosie Venman, a, a dietitian, about ways to lose weight. But what are the different types of bariatric surgery and when are they indicated? Let's say, you know, someone's failed the diet and exercise with a nutritionist and getting some exercise going and they go to the bariatric surgeon. What, what happens? So there are three longstanding types of surgery. There are some others that have been suggested and are more novel, but the three main ones first is the, called the lap band. So if you will, the laparoscopic adjustable gastric banding where they really putting a a band around part of the stomach to decrease the amount of food that would be ingested or decrease the appetite. And it's adjustable. So the way you're going through the skin, be able to adjust the severity there at, at times and increase and loosen it and tighten it so they can lose weight. And it's thought to be less invasive. You're not permanently changing any anatomy going in there. It's not an open surgery. It's really a laparoscopic procedure where they put in a couple of the cameras and and do their magic. And so this would probably be for the patients who don't need to lose quite as much weight on average. And not to say that an extremely obese patient wouldn't want to try this, but the benefit is probably going to be less in terms of weight loss than some of the other more aggressive procedures. Now at NYU, they have done so many of these lap band procedures and we actually, uh, our NYU group, uh, arthritis group did a, a, a look at over 14 years of the surgery and try to determine who really benefited the most in terms of their knee pain from these surgeries. So we looked at, we try to go through a, over 600 patients who had had the surgery and had knee pain, and were able to really go back and talk to 120 of them and found that of these 120, the patients who did better long-term over a year and then over 10 years are the patients who were younger, patients who did not have prior knee injuries. They just had some arthritis over time. And actually the patients who lost the most weight with the surgery overall had the most knee pain improvement. Uh, but uh, that's, you know, it's, it's one way to go about it. Now, after this laparoscopic band surgery, there are two more, more invasive types of surgeries um, called the sleeve gastrectomy, where they're really chopping off a part of the stomach and just there's less, less stomach to, to accumulate uh, food there and less appetite. And then the third one is uh, really called a bypass surgery where you're really, really doing some plumbing work and, and adjusting the anatomy. So you're not, patients are not nearly as, as hungry and have much lower appetite, but we can talk more about those. I just want to throw those three out there. Yeah, no, it's, it's a brilliant overview and let's get into that a little bit more. Obviously you mentioned the lap banding is uh, less invasive, the sleeve gastrectomy and the bypass more so. How much weight loss typically would on average you expect to lose from each of those three options? Yeah. The ways of looking at those surgeries, there is something called percent excess weight loss. And now the bariatric surgeons more recently have been recent years have been looking at percentage total weight loss and the total weight loss from the, the more aggressive surgery to talking about losing up to 25% of weight. Um, but I think the, the, the uh, lesser surgeries, the, um, the, the lap band probably like 10 or 15% of total weight loss. And 
how that translates in terms of patients' weight really depends on their height. You know, what, what how many pounds are coming off. But I, I think it can it can vary immensely. But but think of it as a percentage. Yeah. So obviously more invasive but greater weight loss, but some other factors that patients may want to consider in terms of making this decision include issues around costs, you know, recovery time. I mean, I think another important factor that we can probably go into in a little bit more detail is possible complications from each of these different types of surgery. So do you want to touch upon that, hopefully for those three different options? Sure. Well, for the, the laparoscopic banding, uh, some patients really have a tough time with the bloating and and the adjustment and the ups and downs and uh, doesn't work as well for them, but overall thought to be a, a much milder surgery. And then you can go to the more invasive ones where there are other possible complications, but, uh, but at least when you start with the laparoscopic band, it doesn't mean you can't go on further. It is a, it is thought to be a milder step, but when you get into the gastric sleeve and then the bypass, you really, Talking more open abdominal surgery where you can have uh, obvious infectious complications and strictures and many other problems that can occur. You know, of course, you go to a, a top center and they do these all the time. They'll say there's there's no risk at all. We do fine or a very minimal chance of those things happening. But as with any more invasive abdominal surgery you're, and where you're really making more significant anatomic changes by making cuts and, and sutures and putting things back together, you, you have the risk of blockages and things like that. So not, not to be taken lightly, but certainly thought to be safe in the right hands. The longer term complications. So you mentioned bloating for lap banding, but just wondering whether you'd like to comment at all about any uh, nutritional deficiencies that may develop, any diarrhea or dumping that may occur following these types of surgery. Yeah, it's a good point, and less so with the the banding because you're really just constricting. But when you get to the more plumbing issues where you're really readjusting things inside, you don't have the ability to absorb all the nutrients you normally have in, in, in different parts of the intestine. So, uh, depending on how invasive it is and how extensive, the patients are going to have some more diarrhea, have some more metabolic uh, deficiencies at times. You need to to supplement, but. Yeah, when you, before any patient goes into the operating room, they're, they're well-schooled and and, and, uh, and really have to be a little comfortable with the possibilities of some of these nutritional issues that do appear. It can be addressed with supplementation and, and other, other medications, but you want to minimize uh, the, the other medical complications. You, you have to be aware of, of all those medical conditions that may have to take place. That's a, a great overview and hopefully really helpful for the people who are listening. Now, Jonathan, you recently did a randomized controlled trial where you were looking at knee replacement uh, with severe obesity uh, in one group undergoing surgical weight loss prior to the operation, I think called the SWIFT trial. I'm not sure whether it's finished, but what did you, what did you find? So we're, I would say we're a little more than halfway done. It's a multi-center study, and I, I'm not the principal investigator. I'm, I'm the head of the NYU site, but we are part of a four or five center Multi, multi-center trial run out of um, Geisinger in Pennsylvania. And the goal here is to look at bariatric surgery, see where the gastric bypass, the more aggressive type, versus straight going to total knee replacement for those patients who are at least 35 BMI or over. So these are significantly obese patients. Trying to determine if the patients who got bariatric surgery first either didn't need knee replacement surgery ultimately because they're paying it better, or they uh, at least had a better outcome of their knee replacement surgery later, which is going to take time to get through the whole study, but it's going on for four years or so now. 
And thus far, it, it does appear, and this is this is uh, data presented at earlier meetings in terms of abstracts, but that patients who get the bariatric surgery do get significant improvement in their functional ability, their ability to stand out of a chair. There are certain metrics we use. Their pain is, is improved, not on the scale of the knee replacement patients who overall, on the patient who's seen, it's a imperative study because the patients choose which surgery they want to have. We can't, we can't blind them into that surgery. But the patients who had the bariatric surgery had improvement. And thus far, while it's not as good as the pain relief or the functional improvement from the knee replacement surgery, it's still significant enough that it may be a viable option to improve some patients' knee pain and function. And then if they do lose weight, then they go to the knee replacement. We'll see if those patients even do better with their knee replacement surgery, but we're just simply not there yet with enough data to show. But I think it's a very important study. It's funded by a um, bariatric surgery company, but having no, no input on or, you know, impact on the, the actual design or how the patients are going through the, their, their course. So I think when we, you know, right now, I think we're at about a hundred patients and NYU has had about half the patients in the whole study enrolled and we've been able to study them a little closer as well. But I think when we have the, the, all the data coming through from all the patients, uh, hopefully we'll have a, a more robust answer for the orthopedists and the bariatric surgeons in terms of, is it worth patients going through weight loss surgery beforehand if they're over that 35 threshold? Many of whom in the study started with, you know, the bariatric surgery arm, they started with a much higher BMI, much heavier than the patients who even went through the uh, joint placement surgery first. So that may be another variable to consider. That's uh, superb. Now, Jonathan, you've been doing some of the studies like that observationally for a number of years. Anecdotally, is there a proportion of people that have the bariatric surgery that have pain related to osteoarthritis in the knee that might be considering surgery that forego the surgery after they've lost weight from bariatric surgery? And if so, are there predictors of who they might be? That's a great question. Anecdotally, certainly. I've seen patients and I see them coming through and oftentimes I'll suggest it to them and, and then they won't need a surgery or they'll, they'll need it much later. But in terms of a percentage, I... I would still say it's on the lower side of just not actually needing surgery at all, whether it's 10 to 20%, it may even be a little bit high. But if they do go forward and, and get that knee replacement surgery later, I think they'll be in better shape to benefit from them. But we've been studying these patients really since right after Sandy, a hurricane after 2012, we started this initiative. We've been seeing patients uh, come through and working with, with these two groups at NYU just to see how they've done. And most recently, we've just been trying to, to put our final data together on a cohort of about 100 patients and seeing how they're, how they're doing, uh, looking at the different surgeries, and about half of them have gone through with the sleeve gastrectomy. And really, the patients who go through the more aggressive surgeries, the sleeve gastrectomy and the bypass, through and through, they lose more weight, but they also seem to do much better with the knee pain relief. Uh, the lap band in this cohort we had probably 15, 20% of them just have the lap band and actually some medical weight loss patients too. And by far the patients who had the more aggressive surgeries, regardless of their starting BMI, if they went through and had the sleeve gastrectomy or the full bypass, uh, their knee pain relief was dramatically better. We also found that after that first month, majority of the knee pain improvements happen, uh, whether it's one month or two months, uh, so it's interesting that they continue to lose weight, 
over the course of 12 to 24 months after these big surgeries. But somehow patients really get that knee. That's the first thing that happens. They get the knee pain feeling better overall. I'm sure there are other reasons for many of these patients to get their bariatric surgery and looking for improvement of diabetes, hypertension, and many other metabolic factors. But their knee pain makes that big leap right away and, and sustained over the course of the year. And there are many possible explanations for that, that, uh, that early change as opposed to continuing to improve throughout the year. Yeah, no, it's really helpful. And I think an important story for many people out there who have excess weight and osteoarthritis to hear, but obviously really just to reinforce the fact that there are other options other than surgery, and this surgery is not necessarily something to be taken lightly. And in that context, really just reinforcing the importance of diet and exercise. But one of the other areas that seems to be expanding is the options around pharmacologic options for weight loss. Are you using much of that? What experience do you have with that? And uh, how successful have you been? So I'm not sure. I don't have much experience with that. But with this big cohort we put together, we also involved our medical weight loss team. And there's one investigator in particular, and she has a number of medical weight loss regimens and combination medicines and diets. And what we found thus far is, is that the knee pain improvement is much milder there and not, not really sustained and significant. While the weight may improve somewhat, for these patients with severe knee osteoarthritis pain, it hasn't been as successful. But it's still early and, and newer, bigger and newer and better uh, weight loss medicine regimens are sure to come along too. Yeah. Now, before we get into the next segment, are there any resources that you'd like to point people towards or any questions that I haven't asked that you think might be important to cover off? Yeah, I mean, I think that for my patients, I really refer them to look at osteoarthritis resources in terms of the, uh, the American College of Rheumatology is one great resource just in terms of patient handouts and, and descriptions of what's involved in osteoarthritis and things you can do prior to any surgery, exercise, stretching, weight loss in, in, in mild, more milder fashions. Uh, for the, the bariatric side, I I can't say I have any specific resources that I send people to. I really I talk to patients and make sure that they have good access to our medical and surgical weight loss teams. And I'm sure most institutions have those specialists. But as I'm a rheumatologist, not a bariatrician, I don't spend too much time the literature to, to give to give patients in that regard. But I just make sure they go to the right place. No, no, that's great. And I think a wonderful segue into our closing questions. And Jonathan, we usually start with a rapid fire round. And so these are just some questions, again, to help the listeners to get to know you a little bit better in terms of what interests and intrigues you. But favorite book? I can only remember one book where I laughed out loud, and that was uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany by the, the author John Irvin. Superb. Favorite movie? As I have watched twice during the pandemic with my kids, not once or twice, the movie Airplane. And to, uh, to, to bring that to them it brings back a lot of fun. So that will always be the favorite. Dog or a cat person? Neither. Neither. Sorry, sorry. Hope I don't pet anybody. <laughs> favorite quote? Uh, as my grandmother who passed at 100 always said, if you follow the flock, you could, you could end up a lamb chop. Now, what's your favorite food? Hopefully not lamb chops, but... Not lamb chops. Uh, if we didn't have peanut butter, I don't know what I'd do. Wow. And someone told me that they um, made a combination of peanut butter and jelly ice cream and they said it was superb i'm not I'm not a huge fan but anyway do you have a bad habit i am a procrastinator okay well i'm pleased you didn't put the show off i think it's been very useful <laughs> where would you like to go on holiday 
this is not just because I'm talking to you, David Hunter, but uh, I've always wanted to to make it all the way to Australia, but I never can seem to find that pocket of time or a boondoggle. So hopefully sometime in the future. Well, stop procrastinating. We'd love to see you down here anytime. So come and, come and visit. Thank you. Admittedly, at the moment, it's a bit more challenging. But what superpower would you like to have? I, I would like to fly. Be able to fly again, save a lot of time, and I could go visit Australia a lot faster. Well, if you could meet anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? I was in the same room as Larry Bird once, but uh, I don't think there's anybody who was in intense about what he did, as, or at least no more intense than Larry Bird. And I think it's uh, beyond the basketball love. I, I would love to hear his uh, approach to things. Yeah, my, my son's a huge fan of Larry's, and obviously, you may not know this yet, but one of the ex Celtics has just signed. With Geordie's Sydney Kings team, a guy by the name of RJ Hunter. So there's going to be two Hunters on the Sydney Kings team next year. That's great. No, I, I, I did follow him a couple of years ago. Now, what would you do if money wasn't an issue? Well, what would I do if, if it weren't an issue? I, at this stage of, of life, I would still work probably a little, little less hard. Uh, I would I would take the helicopter to work instead of the, the uh, hour and a half commute. <laughs> but I, I still enjoy what I do very much. And so while I probably wouldn't have all the pressures of seeing as many patients who are trying to fight for those grants and be able to fund my own projects, uh, I think at that point, this, this time of life, I would keep on doing what I'm doing with a little more vacation time. Yeah, well, you're doing a great job. So I hope, I hope you continue to do it and I um, hope that commute improves. Sounds like it's a brutal time. But why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Uh, I think it's an exciting field to be in. I mean, specifically in our subdiscipline of rheumatology, we know that people are getting osteoarthritis day by day and we have nothing we can do to stop it. So for me, I mean, I, I like seeing patients and that's, that's exciting to bring that to people, but to be able to do something that might impact more people than I could possibly see is to, to work in this field that uh, hopefully in the next number of years, we'll be singing a much different tune and like they are in rheumatoid arthritis now. I think that drives me to be, to be part of that that group that hopefully someday will bring, bring osteoarthritis to its knees. That's a great quip. And I hope you do that. Um, now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Be kind to each other. There are too many people out there who take a different approach, let's say. So, yeah, so important, man. I think particularly in today's uh, busy and digital age, it's probably become even more important to pause, reflect, and be mindful of how we can be kind to one another. Now, in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge, or wisdom that you'd like to give to people who have osteoarthritis? I would say that I'd encourage them to stay as active and hopeful as they can. Keep, keep the joints moving. Any activity, any, any uh, exercise is better than none. And hopefully, if they can stay involved and active and maintain the joints best they can until some sort of better treatment's available, they're, they're doing themselves a service. So keep the faith help us on the way. Wonderful. Now, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time, uh, for your input. That was really, really valuable and great to have a chance to have a chat. And hopefully we'll get a chance to do that in person in the not too distant future. I'd love that. And a tennis game. Yeah. It's been a while since we played that, but uh, yeah. sometime soon, hopefully. Absolutely. For many people who have osteoarthritis, they may be above a healthy weight and that compounds the pain and the risk of progression of osteoarthritis and increases the risk of surgery. In the first instance, please do try 
diet and exercise. And hopefully you've listened to the podcast by Steve Messier or Rosie Venman that provides some insights as to ways that you can, through diet and exercise, lose weight. If you're struggling, another option that may be available to you is that of bariatric surgery. And hopefully some of the content we've covered today gives you some idea about the various surgical options, some of the issues or complications related to those, and the magnitude of weight loss that you might expect. In addition, I think it's important to recognize that continuing to lose weight is a perennial challenge. There are a number of options that are available to you, and it's really important not to jump at surgery, specifically bariatric surgery, as the first port of call. As always, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. If you've got time and interest in the show, please do rate us. It's really very helpful for us. And please do send along questions. We like to hear what you'd like to know about the show. And particularly if you've got any feedback about various things that you've been hearing. Again, thanks for your time and look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.